Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Brian Kennedy. I'm Marian Johnson. And this is a podcast about what happens when policy and culture intersect. Yeah, and we thought a great way to kick off this podcast is to talk about what is maybe the most important movie of our time, Black Panther, which just came out a little while ago. All right, so let's get started. thoughts yes. Brian what did you think of the movie um so like you said it was the most important movie of the century um, <laughs> no I mean it was it was first of all it was a really it was amazing also the fact that it was filmed mostly in Atlanta <laughs> very <laughs> amazing so all of that I mean it was um everything we needed for Black History Month yeah um it was everything that we needed in this political regime that we're stuck in yeah. um, <laughs> So yeah, I I don't know. I there was you know I, I enjoy Marvel movies, mm-hmm. and so um, I kind of avoided reading and listening to stuff about the movie before it came out. Um, so I kind of went in thinking that it was going to be very much another Marvel movie. Um, I thought I had high expectations. I thought it was going to be good, but yeah. I didn't think that it was going to make the um, social commentary that it did um, in such a like easy. Way. I mean, it was it was almost. Um, one thing I really enjoyed about it was that there weren't a ton of explanatory comments, mm-hmm. right? So they weren't like catching up the audience on their references, right? <laughs> it was just like you either get it or, or you it wasn't for it. you, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I feel like those are important. Um, those are really important movies. So you know, those that's that's one of the reasons why I really appreciated it. Yeah, and I am not that crazy about Marvel movies. I think I've seen maybe five out of the hundreds that are out there, um, not including the X-Men movies, which I just generally love. But yeah, so I had seen a bunch of headlines about the movie, but I didn't want to read too much because I didn't want to get too excited about it and then have it disappoint me because it's just a Marvel movie. But it ended up just being incredible. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies that I've seen. It's, I mean, there's just so much black excellence behind the camera and, you know, in front of the camera. And it just from minute one, I was just so caught up in the emotions and in just the portrayals and the different characters and the plot. Like, all of it just came together so beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, especially, like, just in the past couple of years with Get Out, um, with A Wrinkle in Time coming up, um, with all of Ava's movies, really, um, <laughs> it kind of just came at a it came at a perfect time um, and was just done in the absolute right way. Um, I mean... What do you? What are your thoughts about? So, what are your thoughts, kind of more deeply into what was in there? Maybe unpack them. And if you haven't seen the movie, these are going to be spoilers. Yeah. but it's on you. Because <laughs> you should have been there. So. Yeah, you can pause this right now and rush to the theater and then come back so you can listen because it's going to be spoilers all the way through. Um, so yeah, I guess drilling a little deeper. One thing that really struck me, and I've seen it twice so far. So one thing that really struck me both times was just the visual component, which is just especially the costumes and the set design. And there were just so many African influences from so many different countries, which I'm just really not used to seeing. I think I'm used to seeing things very much like 
associated with the countries or tribes or cultures that they are associated with as opposed to being part of something collaborative. And so you see things like the lip plates that were in Lupita's river tribe leader um, in their whole tribe. Those are Ethiopian and so are Michael B. Jordan's scar tattoos. Um, there's obviously a lot from South Africa. You've got Angela Bassett's Zulu-inspired headdress, um, Daniel Kaluuya's shoulder cape, and the Wakandan language itself is um, its a South African language. Um, then you see the Dora Milaje, who are dressed like the Maasai from Kenya, um, but also have stacked neck rings that you see in the Ndebele tribe in Zimbabwe. And so, th- again, those are, that's the king's army, so that's the uh, female warriors. And then, repping for me, there's a lot of West Africa, too. Um, Forrest Whitaker is wearing, like, an agbaje, which is uh, the flowing robe, uh, the big purple one that he was wearing. Um, Michael B. Jordan takes an Igbo mask from the museum just because he's feeling it, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chadwick Boseman is wearing robes with a kente scarf from Ghana. And so, I mean, shout out to Ruth Carter, who is the costume designer. And I cannot remember the woman's name who was the production designer, but there was a lot of... I mean, you had a lot of Yoruba stuff, you had a lot of Ghanaian stuff just sort of in the set design. And it was just really, I think it contributed to the glorious feeling of just like the diaspora mm-hmm. and it being represented so fully. Yeah, I mean, the ubiquitous use of just adinkra symbols everywhere. Right. Just like unapologetically, <laughs> like, bam, we're, you know, and if, again, like if you don't, there was no attempt to say like, to explain what, what they were are. doing with, with the entire pan-African effort. And it was just like, if you... If you understand this, then you'll appreciate it, and right. it's for you. Right. Um, and so I think that was really special. Um, one thing that really stood out to me um, was Michael B.'s character, mm-hmm. uh, Michael B. Jordan's character, Eric. He, slash Killmonger. Slash Killmonger. He, um, I mean, so, you know, his character was extremely complex, but, like, on a very, very basic level, just... A couple of his lines, one where he goes and he he talks about um, his ancestors who um, who chose death rather than bondage, which is a whole thing that I have thoughts on. But like, (laughs) you know, that type of thing. And then also just this whole um, this he very strongly had this connection. This he had a physical, actual connection that he knew about Mm -hmm. to Wakanda, Mm -hmm. to Africa, um, but spent his entire life in the U.S. and in um, in Oakland. Um, and so I think, I mean, that just spoke to millions and millions and millions of us who um, are also in the same situation where, like, we are fully American mm-hmm. um, and we'd like to believe that we are fully African, too, mm-hmm. and just the struggle to kind of understand where you fit in the diaspora. Um, and so, you know, he embodied the anger that came along with that, um, but he also embodied, like, the passion that came along with that mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of different things that... Um, that, that was just helpful to kind of see reflected because, you you know, those are all things that you carry with you and very often you don't reflect on them. Like, how is this actually impacting my mental health and whatnot? Right. And so uh, we kind of saw what happens <laughs> if your mental health goes unaddressed yeah, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sea of racism. You end up um, killing everybody, <laughs> I think was the moral of the story. Yeah. Don't let your mental health go unaddressed or you end up killing everybody. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I think that, I mean, I really related to his father's character just because he is, he's the one character who is of both worlds, like very specifically, like he was Wakandan and chose America and felt like he's turned his back on a, on a whole way of being and they've turned their back on him and that, you know, sort of living with the regret of that and the weight of that and seeing how it's impacted his son 
it was just very like I really was not expecting to get caught so deep in my feelings with a Marvel movie, but I just I had to hold back tears for their their one scene together. Yeah. I mean, 1992 Oakland. It was just like, bow. Here's a whole. <laughs> it was like, here's a here's a ton. Here's just like an entire chapter. Right. Um, our chapters of American history. Right. Uh, from everything dealing with the Black Panther Party itself, dealing with um, with crack epidemic mm-hmm. um, and Reaganomics and everything that came out of that. Um, and we'll refer to an article later, but. Um, one of my friends, uh, Penn, shout out to Penn, go buy his book, OG told me. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he, he retweeted this article um, from the LA Times from 1992, um, and it it claimed um, Oakland, or it claimed 1992 as the deadliest year in Oakland. And so, you know, things like that, it was no coincidence that um, that the the director chose that time frame and that year yeah. and that location to, to, to set that scene. And I think it very obviously resonated with a lot of, I mean, both times I saw it, as soon as you see Oakland 1992, like the whole audience is sort of murmured like, okay, yeah, we see mm-hmm. what this is about to do. Like it was, and you hear too short on the soundtrack, like it's, it's letting you know right away, like this is going to be deep and this is going to be very, very black. Yeah. yeah. Also at the end, yep. <laughs> at the end, which is like, you brought me to Oakland? It's like, I thought we were going to like Coachella or Disneyland or something. Was just that was like, beautiful. Yeah. So we could probably do an entire episode just on Shuri's character yeah. and how much I love her, but have that for another time. Supplemental episode. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess we can zoom out and talk a little bit more about the broader context that Black Panther is in and what sort of what it's reflecting and what it might impact going forward. And I think one thing that really um, one thing that really struck me is just its very unique portrayal of Africans in a non-African produced movie. And if you think about other non-African produced movies set in Africa, like Blood Diamond or District Nine or Last King of Scotland or Hotel Rwanda, like a, a lot of these movies have white protagonists, which makes black characters stay in the background or sort of stay, you know, tokenized and not really humanized. And B, they're like, Africans are often portrayed as one of these things. Like either they are violent warlords or diamond traders or genocidal soldiers, or they're helpless, you know, the victims of these violent warlords to the point of being infantilized. So they're not actually seen as full humans. They're just seen as like these helpless children. Um, or there's one male character, and it's always a male character, and it's always just the one who's, like, the noble, like, maybe he's a father, like, in District 9 and Blood Diamond, and he's different from the rest of the Africans because, like, maybe he's smart or something like that. Don Cheadle. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's... There's no room for a dynamic character there. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no room for them being real humans. They don't have any sort of internal struggle, um, and they don't have any complex relationships with each other. Um, And so that that's completely flipped on its head in Black Panther where you see every single character is dynamic and has their own arc and has their own decision that they have to make. Like they're all self-actualized and they all have complex relationships with each other. And I mean, one of my favorite characters and they're all my favorite characters, but one of my favorite ones, Lupita Nyong'o's character, Nakia, who has a really complex relationship with T'Challa, who is her ex. Um, but they're still clearly very close. Um, 
and she also has a very complex relationship with um, Okoye, who's a general of the Dora Milaje, and they all challenge each other to think differently about their roles and what makes them Wakandan and how they can really contribute to their country. And that's just, it's so rare to see Africans. It's so rare to see black women and just black people portrayed so dynamically and so organically that it just, I mean, yeah, like you're st- you can have so much to say about each and every character and what they bring and what they, you know, like how they're challenged that, yeah, it's just, it's just bomb. I think even from like a literary perspective, I mean, it was just like, it, and I, I told you this like immediate afterthoughts <laughs> for them, but like I was like, this should have been, this should be a novel yeah, because, um, because of the complexity of the characters. And, um, I mean, no, at the end, you're like, nobody was wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I think that that just really, uh, exactly like you said, it really adds like actual complexity and paints people um, in a more realistic light. Um, and it, it, I mean, for me, it was helpful to like actually, oh, I hold multiple beliefs mm-hmm. that are actually conflicting with each other. Right. Um, and so I think that was, I, that was just masterfully done. You it know? really was. And I, think, I don't know if I've seen that in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't see, like there's so little, I mean, the focus is often just given to the protagonist and maybe the love interest, maybe. Um, but to see it in every single, like just secondary characters and to see even people who get a few scenes like Mbaku, like you see him, he actually has his own arc and he makes a decision and it makes sense why he chooses not to help Wakanda. And it makes sense why he decides, no, I need to help Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Like that, every opinion seems like really well grounded in a human relatable emotion. And that's really rare. And part of the fallout from rarely being portrayed as full humans is that you know, that doesn't come from nowhere, you know, like that comes from human beings who have very specific ideas about Africans and whether they're conscious or not. And so they're going to keep on portraying them in certain ways. And so the humans who contribute to our pop culture portrayal are also contributing to our policy decisions and who we decide to help and how we decide to help. And so, you know, that sort of influences what we think about foreign aid and which countries we should help. And, you know, we have Mm -hmm. a president who clearly feels one type of way about that. (laughs) And, Um, (laughs) You know, I don't know if you guys have heard (laughs) how he feels about Haiti, for instance, or, you know, countries that are... the term he used was, was it shithole? Shithole countries. That's, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is just, I mean, it's... Can you believe that three years ago... (laughs) (laughs) We had a president who just didn't... I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) President who wouldn't even curse, let alone curse out an entire nation of people, um an entire nation of black and brown people who have been sort of impoverished specifically by this nation's policy decisions. But let me not, let me not go too deep into that, but it does. I mean, yeah, like I will for a second, like it does. (laughs) I mean, that makes pop culture isn't existing in a vacuum. It's coming from humans who have specific perceptions of people. And as long as the same perceptions keep on getting played out, we're going to keep on getting that sort of fed into our own, our own decisions. So like pop culture is impacting policy is impacting pop culture and it just sort of keeps on feeding into itself. If we start seeing more portrayals of Africans and just black and brown people as people as opposed to bodies or as, you know, villains, then I think that would have a huge impact on how we decide to actually help people. Do you think so with anything that's wonderful and and brilliant and good, okay. there's always backlash. 
Yeah. And so there's been I've avoided reading stuff in general about Nothing this because this yeah this, but I mean there's been backlash. People have been upset that people are still talking about it, and so happy about it. <laughs> they call them haters. Okay. So I'm wondering. I think I've heard about I'm haters. Yeah. Are they are they all on the internet or are they? They're mostly on the internet. Yes, I have not encountered. Well, yeah. So do you? I mean, do you think that? I mean, what 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 about this kind of challenging those stereotypes? Do you think are causing people to feel some type of way about this movie, or do you have thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think that people. I mean, when you're being told either explicitly or implicitly that you you have stereotypical beliefs and that those are wrong, mm-hmm. of course your impulse is going to say, "No, you're wrong, and you should stop talking about this at all." Um, I think that's a very human reaction. I think it makes sense, but. Um, it's also not helpful. It's not productive. And, you know, trying to just sort of yuck everyone's yum over Black Panther is not, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that it's productive. I don't think that it's proving anything interesting or worth talking about. Like, it's just saying, well, no, I don't like this thing that other people like. And it could be for whatever reason, but like, yeah, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's worth, I haven't read anything. I've mm-hmm. refused to read any sort of backlash She's articles. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm just trying to protect my mental health right now and just live in a world where everybody loves this movie because it's amazing. Yeah, there was a, um, that was a really dynamic way to kind of paint the haters. Thank I think you. that was um, I saw this post from a teacher and I don't know whether it was true or not, but I'm going to assume that it was. Sure. Um, but essentially this parent wrote a note saying, um, I understand my child called somebody else a colonizer. I'll speak to them about it. <laughs> so, which is, I mean, it's on one level, it's funny. On a second level, like, do I, I, I understand why a child would be upset if they were called a colonizer. Yes. <laughs> Especially without proper context. <laughs> you just know, like, this is a negative. Yours is in a negative way, and I don't like it. But, like, the, I mean... I think that just I think that also demonstrates like just the power of this because I mean growing up black in America you walk around and you just like dang <laughs> I don't understand I one I don't understand why nobody likes me right I, I didn't do <laughs> why it. am I here being hated by so many people and 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 I think I mean the other message like we have such a huge culture about like bootstraps and self determination. Mm-hmm. Which we'll actually get to that the exact term self sufficiency and self determination later, yeah, because um, it's been tied recently to a specific policy idea, but um, but to have the context placed there and so like it's not you, mm-hmm. um, and like you know that's that's very important and that's yeah. really empowering. Um, there's this quote who and I don't even know to attribute to. I wrote it down at a conference, um, so I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I will find, I will search and try to figure find out, out what the it, conference was, but, find out right. who the person was. But the quote was, there's nothing wrong with black people that end them racism won't fix. And um, and I feel like this movie spoke to that. And yeah. um, that's one of my new mantras in life. Whenever I'm feeling down, I'm just like, just remember. <laughs> Ending racism can fix all of this. Yeah, yeah. No, it's deep. I like that quote. Talk about a little bit of history. Yes, please. Go All right. For it. So, um, as you know, um, this movie didn't just pop up in the middle of nowhere. Yep. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't all fictional. Um, <laughs> 
Vibranium may or may not be real. We're not um, telling people. Don't worry no, about that's it. a secret. It's a diasporic <laughs> secret. Um, but um, the the very kind of on the nose um, historical piece that this was rooted in um, is colonization, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even more specifically, um, what ended up being called the partitioning of Africa. Um, so. I don't really know where to start. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just briefly start like 1400. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, take us back that far. I'm going to skip ahead like four centuries real quick. But okay. like 1400s, Portugal um, lands on the Gold Coast. Um, and it's believed somewhere around 1444, 1460, the first ship leaves with, um, with African slaves mm-hmm. for Portugal or back to Europe. Um so this is kind of um, some kind of market as the beginning of extraction of resources um, out of Africa. But what really stands out as a huge event um, is the Berlin Conference. Okay. Um, so that's 1884 to 1885. That is four um, centuries. Yeah, yeah you so we skipped, skipped this right ahead. ahead. <laughs> Just know that a lot of stuff happened. Well, <laughs> One or two things happened. Essentially what happened room. was that, you know, European countries started flooding and in, in running to Africa in order to... Um, set up colonies mm-hmm. in order to start plantations and extract mm-hmm. resources. Um, and there were, I mean, I, I guess I would say there were really complex relationships between um, African nations and European nations, although on the whole, it was largely exploitative. Right. Just um, the plunder of a, yes, an plunder. entire continent. Exactly. Um, so, Panic. but the difference was that it was an uncoordinated plunder. So, <laughs> so in, they didn't get organized until <laughs> in 1885. They're like, we need an organized and civil way to plunder this entire continent. I think that's literally it's so a quote. civilized. And um, and so the Germany called this conference, um, and they invited what they considered to be the major players. Um, so it was France, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal, and Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, there were um, a, a, a majority of European countries. Um, Italy was there, who was not considered a major player. And if, um, yeah, if you look at a map of the different <laughs> colonies, like they've got a tiny, they've got a tiny part of Africa. Yeah. Um, so the goal of the conference was to avoid war within European nations mm-hmm. um, and to divide the continent in a way to avoid conflict. Um, and then in order, so they made rules, quote unquote rules, also known as policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the rules were that nations who claimed African colonies or African nations um, had to quote unquote civilize um, said nation and they have to establish a military presence or a military outpost. Um, so it's hard for me to like talk about this in a non-cynical way because it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, but this is probably one of the most cynical acts in yeah. human history. So yeah. I think we can be cynical. So a couple of things are going on right now. One um, is this widespread effort to paint um exploitation as uh as a kind act of civilization Mm -hmm. and that's going to be utilized over and over and over again throughout the diaspora 
Um, it continues to be utilized today. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's important to note that it was actually a policy mm-hmm. that this would be done. And in order for it to be justified, they have to, I mean, literally say, and we're going to, we're going to take their land. Right. We're going to, um, you know, construct militaries here. We're going to occupy it. But it's going to be okay because we're going to civilize them. And this was written down as policy. Right. Um, the other thing. So I mean that's that's what happened. Right. Like, you know, they went and the other the other thing to note, um, and I mean this is another I guess another point about policy is that the borders that we now see today, um, amongst current African nations were just artificially made with right. this um with the Berlin conference. They didn't respect um existing national borders. Right. Um, existing tribal like property. Maybe. Right. Um and so what you saw were um Lands were split and divided. People were forced into the same country, although it made no sense. I mean, there were just completely <laughs> political, artificial borders. Right. Um, and there's a whole there's a whole bunch of, um, I guess, um, academic writing or thought or whatever about the implications of that, which I'm not well-versed on enough to even begin to have that conversation. But I think it's worth noting that there are implications for dividing families Um dividing nations and putting them together in arbitrary ways. Um, So one, another thing to note, another little bit of a deeper dive into the partitioning of Africa. And I don't feel like I can talk about this without mentioning King Leopold II. Of course you can. uh, Because he, um, he really, you know, just embodied everything that was terrible (laughs) (laughs) about all of this. I mean, so... It's so ridiculous. He, King Leopold is the king of Belgium during this time period. So all the other nations at the Berlin Conference decided that the the country, so France or Great Britain or whoever, Portugal, that country would be in charge of, um, of colonizing this land. So I hate to put like layers and levels of terribleness, but, you know, in one, you know, in, in this one sense, you had a political body is responsible for this land. Mm-hmm. They're bound to certain rules or whatever. In theory, it was still terrible. <laughs> With King Leopold, they were like, you know what? You can just have the Congo. Okay. It wasn't the Congo then. It was the cent- Central Africa. Right. Like you own this. This is your personal property. Um there are about two million, twenty million people living here. This is your personal property. That was a policy, international policy that was agreed upon by all these nations. Um, and and I think the important part about it being policy is that under any other reasonable, normal circumstance, this would be just like grand to the umpteenth degree of theft. (laughs) (laughs) That's all this is. That's all all this is. But because it was agreed upon and signed. It was written down. And written down and stamped and sealed. It was legal and it was policy. Right. Um, So that's, I mean, so take that, you know, for whatever. So King Leopold legally owns 20 million people people in Central Africa. Um, He was not a benevolent he was, he was, <laughs> to say the least, he, not a benevolent, he was not a benevolent <laughs> colonist. Um, so he he was infamous for um, forcing the indigenous people to farm rubber um, as a form of tax payment to him. Mm-hmm. Um, people who were unable to reach the quotas 
um, either had limbs chopped off or were murdered. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen famous pictures. Um, it's really terrible. Um, and in between um, 1880 and 1920, the population of, of Congo was halved from about 20 million people to 10 million people. Um, as a result of disease and just murder mm-hmm. um, and all the other terrible things that come along with colonization. So by 1914, 90% of the entire African continent had, was owned, which is not owned. like... <laughs> putting air quotes, quotes around that. <laughs> which is not a thing. Right. <laughs> owned by European nations. Only Liberia and Ethiopia um, were non-colonized. Although, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ethiopia was colonized for a brief moment by Italy. Yeah, and a, then... Then they lost. Yeah, they didn't keep a really, really strong hold on that, which is, I mean, I'm not going to get into how that's a historical fact of just about Italy, but yeah, they didn't hold on to it for very long. Okay. I don't know the history behind that, but I just know that that's a thing. <laughs> um, and so it would not be until 1957 um, that Ghana would be the first African nation to gain independence back. Um, and then so that she- kickstarted a, like nations across the continent right. gaining independence right. so especially like the 60s is a huge time for african independence so shout out to kwame nkrumah my man holding it down <laughs> in ghana um so the other thing i'll mention um is just there's so this happened so that happened for you know 500 years and yeah and and it's important to note that like it wasn't just this isolated policy thing that's going on on the continent of africa right like the idea of bringing civilization to mostly brown um continents is something that you see all over the world right and civilization means something very specific which is you know military like a very european sort of military capitalism um and christianity Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, and the other thing to note is like African Africa is portrayed as this. I mean, Africa is not recognized as the diaspora mm-hmm. um, throughout this time. Um, it's not recognized for influencing mm-hmm. just like culture and technology and all these things. And so um, there's this idea that this entire time. Africa is being colonized, but there's no impacts elsewhere in the world. Right. Um, but we see the impacts everywhere. So right. whether it's in literature, you know, with um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. um, which really solidifies Africa as the quote unquote dark continent. Right. In this place of um, just like violence. Right. And yeah. Savage. It's how we're, yeah. How we're still being portrayed right. as violent or childlike and in need of, you know, this benevolent white savior to come and yes, Marlo. rescue us. Marlo is the white savior. There you go. Um, the white man who is taking on the burden. He's, he is symbolic of the white man's <laughs> burden. Um, but I think, you know, that people, that's a, that's a popular book that really influences culture. Mm-hmm. I'll also note, that in that book, and I'm not going to talk too much about the book because like, it's a lot. That's not what this is, <laughs> but parallels shout to uh, to the writers of Black Panther for just being freaking brilliant. Um, so um, I think his name is Claus Claw Claw the character in the movie. No, so Claw's the character in the movie. Mm-hmm. Claw's the colonist, the colonizer. Yes, in the Black Panther, but there's also a character. Um, Kurtz, Kurtz, Kurtz yes. who I'm thinking about, in, um, in Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. who um, is essentially Claw. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same, like, vigilante, um, colonizer, um, 
who who we see reflected, and it's I think it's a very intentional parallel um, between the film and kind of calling back to that that literature piece. Like who calls the Wakandan savages, yes. but is also seemingly obsessed with black culture. Mm. Like has a mixtape coming out. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> so glad. Yeah, Josh, loves making it rain. Like all of this mm, stuff, which. We could have a whole nother episode <laughs> about how people love black culture and hate, hate black, black people. people. Yep. Um, so maybe not. <laughs> Again, another, another supplementary podcast. episode. <laughs> so um, the other thing I'll say just about the historical piece is the other parallel um, is this uh, history of isolationism. Mm-hmm. So. Um, again, if you haven't seen the movie, then you need to go see it because <laughs> otherwise you won't understand Wakanda's, um, or if you read the comics, you'll, you'll know about Wakanda's practice of, um, very strict isolationism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this parallels to a couple of different moments in American history, one being kind of right after the American revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I don't really care about that part of history. What was more sure. interesting, <laughs> what's more noted is is the more recent example of isolationism that happened after between the two world wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one reason there was much more globalization at that time, and so it was a lot. It was a much bigger deal for America to say we're not intervening in any type of policy. Right. Add to the fact that it wasn't just any type of normal world circumstances. Um, the Holocaust was occurring, and America was like, no, we're not. We know we're not getting involved in any of this. Um, and there's a lot of people who will, you know, there's a, people have tons of rationales for why America decided to get involved. And one thing that I subscribe to is just like the um, bad publicity yep. that America was getting, um, which also led to, I mean, that happened again um, with the Cold War and, um, and civil rights. But going back to the 1930s, it took a ton to get America to agree that, all right, we're going to help people because it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, and even then, it's still a question of whether they were doing <laughs> How much because, are we trying to help? Right, <laughs> like, right, right. How right. much are we trying to just make ourselves look better? Exactly. Yeah. But that was a strong thing. That It was a, it was a call back to that point in history as well. Yeah. Um, um, and then, do you want to talk about nationalism? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it is interesting how this movie sort of parallels American nationalism, where you see... Um, T'Challa is making a very conscious choice at the beginning of the movie that we, like Wakanda is supposed to be separate. Wakanda is supposed to be safe and, you know, not exposed to all of the troubles of the rest of the world. And that's an opinion that his best friend shares. That's Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out. Um, and it's not an opinion that, you know, like Nakia shares, who says Wakanda is strong enough to help everyone and still be able to help ourselves. It's the right thing to do. We've got people all over the world who are suffering and we need to help them. Um, and that's also Killmonger's perspective that Wakanda has been, I mean, the way he says it, y'all just sitting in here comfortable. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the rest of us are out here, you know, dealing with the ramifications of the slave trade and of colonization and that, you know, it's morally wrong of you to have been withholding help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that was another tension um, just like that, the at least with Eric's character of just like, you know, how strong is the diaspora in yeah. terms of um, actual connections and how much of it is, is, is it just this like theoretical thing that makes us feel really good mm-hmm. or is this, is it a very real deep connection? Um, and I think the, I think the movie answered the question being that it is more than just this theory um, and this pattern of movement. There's a very real deep connection um, and shared um, kind of pain, but then also kind of like shared just 
um, gloriness and, yeah. um, and all that stuff. And so that was a really cool point. Also in that, I think there was an underline of like, listen to black women. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every day. <laughs> because they were all right all the time. So if you didn't catch that, then you might want to watch it again. Rewatch it. And consider the fact that of the people that we see um, in the movie, Nakia, who is the one who's advocating from the very beginning that Wakanda needs to help, is the only character who you see actually helping black and brown people mm-hmm. in the movie. Because her first appearance is her rescuing, well, she and uh, T'Challa helping rescue women who have been kidnapped by Boko Haram, which, as a Nigerian, I was very sad that our one, <laughs> <laughs> our one sort of you know, reflection or representation in this glorious movie about the diaspora is Boko Haram, but we'll just, I'll be okay with it, I guess. I mean, my, my representation was this like crazed, just completely (laughs) torn apart. (laughs) That's true. Tortured. (laughs) No, that's fair. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so this is, I mean, all of the black women in this movie are the ones who are saying like, we I guess they're not all, but they like their belief in loyalty and their belief in helping others is so strong. And yeah, listen to black women. So um, the other, I guess the other thing I'll say is just like the um, the parallel between the type of nationalism that we saw in this movie mm-hmm. and the type of nationalism that we're experiencing right now. Right. One thing that freaked me out was a line from um, Daniel's character mm-hmm. where he said um, something to the effect of once we let refugees in, they're going to bring their problems to Wakanda mm-hmm. um, and make the rest of the country just like ours. And I, was, when, I think when he said that line, all the air in the movie theater was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so, I mean, that was powerful because, one, because like a lot of the terms – um, and just ideals that we have today mm-hmm. have been completely hijacked. Yes. So like patriotism, mm-hmm. you know, you can't say patriotism without thinking about like white supremacists. Right. And, you know, you can't think about nationalism um, just in terms of like nationalism by itself. It's tied to white nationalism. Right. And so um, I think the movie did two things in that. And one, um, showing how, I mean, it just added complexity to our, like everybody has, everybody let me not generalize. Sure. People have and hold conflicting ideals, whether that be nationalism mm-hmm. or whatever it is, um, and it doesn't make them a bad person. Right. Right? Because I don't think anybody in the film was portrayed necessarily as purely evil, except, except for, for Claw. Claw. <laughs> <laughs> but, Even then, he's got a mixtape coming out. Yeah, like, that's... Yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but they, you know, they, they held these ideals, and they were still complex, and they weren't terrible people. Um and so I think that was helpful to contrast that um, and say, like, these I- the ideas aren't bad. It's it's the white supremacy um, that, that makes <laughs> it all bad. bad. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was really that was really helpful. Yeah. And that fear and pain are very human yeah. motivations for whatever policy you see, like an isolationist policy is largely driven by fear and pain. Yes. Um, yeah. And whether that's fear from something that has actually happened or fear from something that could happen that you think could happen. It's sort of what you're afraid of and how that gets um, how that gets portrayed is where it becomes a problem. Because if you're just afraid of terrifying black and brown people, then that's a problem. <laughs> but if you're if you have like fears, you know, for instance, that you're going to be taken advantage of as a formerly colonized nation um, that has been plundered by you know larger countries before, like it, then fear and fear and pain 
you know, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Especially his character. I mean, he lost his his father was murdered by Claw, and so he right. has a very specific like out there. It's dangerous, and those people are evil, um, and so that makes a lot of sense. Right. I think the larger takeaways are that if you have not seen the movie, um, you need to rethink your priorities. Yeah, because some of wanna... us have managed to see it multiple times. <laughs> and like with, I, yeah, there's no, there's no excuse. No, um, but there is. I mean, we forgive you. Let's not make it seem like we don't forgive you. I feel and like that you're not Oprah a good person. Bought movie theaters out for people. <laughs> so, I mean, numerous people buy movie theaters out. It's wild. We have lowered the barriers participating. <laughs> Um, so I guess um, kind of tying up to tying tying up this theoretical argue, conversation about the movie mm-hmm. um, to talk about some very real um, current day policy issues that we're facing because mm-hmm. um, it can't all be fun. <laughs> so I mean I think the biggest one that I don't know if it's the biggest one, but one of the most obvious ones is the current immigration debate, right? Um, and I mean, I, there's not much that I think needs to be said about that other yeah. than it just calls to um, the racism that is, you know, really driving um, the conversation um, and the fact that our current conversations around immigration fail to recognize people right. as people. Right. Uh, when we use terms like chain migration instead of like families, <laughs> right. um, it's an effort to, you know, dehumanize people. Right. And even sometimes from when we're trying to advocate for um, fairer immigration policy, when we talk about, you know, all of these doctors who are getting deported or we talk about, you know, like this, this person is a soldier, or this person, like talking about our productivity as mm-hmm. immigrants is actually not talking about us as people. It's right. talking about what we can contribute to a very specific idea of, um, you know, success as a nation. And right. what we should be talking about is People need to live somewhere. They should be allowed to live here. Right. Um, I think also just the, I mean, it, it also asks the question about what is the responsibility, like what responsibility do we have as a global citizen? Right. You know, like we didn't get, Wakanda didn't get all that vibrating because of something that they did. Right. They were fortunate enough, they were lucky enough to just stumble upon that land, to be on that land. Um the United, you know, the United States history about wealth is a little bit more. It's a little um, bit more complicated. More we complicated. didn't stumble upon anything. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we very didn't. violently took right. everything. And so the question being that, as a nation that um, has this tremendous wealth as a result of exploitation of brown brown peoples um, and poor people um, over centuries and centuries and centuries, what is your responsibility now? Right. Um, FYI, there is one. (laughs) (laughs) You have a moral responsibility (laughs) to Um, your fellow humans. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there was that, um, that, that policy, I think that ties to current policy Mm -hmm. questions. I think the other thing um, that we've talked about um, is the idea, the larger idea about um, how, you know, race plays a role in what we think are the best economic decisions um, and the best policy decisions. Mm-hmm. So 
a lot of times um, in the policy debate, we'll talk about what is the cost-benefit analysis mm-hmm. or, you know, what is the best economical decision? What's going to grow our economy? Mm-hmm. You hear that one so much. Um, jobs, jobs, jobs. What, yeah, what we just want to grow jobs and we just want to, you know, we want to make sure that people have opportunities and access and blah, blah, blah. Well, not, they don't talk about access, but, um, <laughs> but there's this idea that um, economics works in a vacuum mm-hmm. um, and this idea that capitalism one, one, one works, and then two um, works in a vacuum and right. is not influenced by these other things, like right. this, the whole free market concept. Like they're just natural forces right. like gravity or something. We, we created economics. Mm-hmm. We created capitalism. We created all these things. Um, and they are social constructs, just like race is a social construct. Mm-hmm. And so um, they don't work in isolation of each other. And so when we talk about um, what is the best economic option, what is the option that's going to help us to bring in the most, um, you know, balance the budget the best or whatever like that, those are not pure decisions. Those are based upon, those are tainted with um, stereotypes mm-hmm. um, and racism. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when when we want to talk about, um, right now, there's a, there's a huge conversation going on about welfare reform mm-hmm. um and marco not marco Rubio, he's on my mind because of <laughs> because of those amazing kids oh <laughs> <laughs> those um, amazing kids in florida um paul ryan oh. that guy <sighs> there's so many people who can produce that reaction for me but paul ryan uh. it's like come on man <laughs> could be a person <laughs> it's not actually that hard it's not it's not <laughs> Anyway, Paul Ryan has continuously just been hammering the idea that we have to balance the budget. Mm -hmm. We have to balance the budget. We have to reduce the deficit. Um, This is the same guy who um, helped to push through a unpaid $1.5 trillion tax plan. Yep. That's another story. But the idea that balancing the budget... Um, the natural thing is entitlement reform, or what they want to call entitlement reform, right. aka welfare reform, right. aka um, we're punishing poor people, we're blaming poor people for, for being, being poor. poor. Um, and so, you know, it's no coincidence. It's not an economical, you know, this isolated economical argument that mm-hmm. entitlement reform is the place to balance the budget and right. the place to um, reduce the deficit. Right. That's based upon stereotypes. Um, it goes back to it goes back to a lot of things. It goes back to Ronald Reagan, um, Ronald Reagan era politics with uh, the welfare, welfare queen. Queens. It goes even further back. I'm gonna you can stop me. <laughs> no. It goes further back to the New Deal, right? Um, about um, how we didn't extend workers' protections for people who were farm workers and domestic workers right. who happened to be women and people of color. Right. I mean, back then, largely black people. Yep. Um, and that was speci- like that was intentionally done. It wasn't an accident. It was right. specifically to get southern states to sign on with the New Deal. Right. And southern states weren't going to sign on to something that was going to help black people. Right. So, you know, this idea, these ideas that we want to hear, we're calling back to this idea we mentioned earlier of Mm -hmm. self-sufficiency and Mm self-determination. These are words literally, um, was it Thursday? Um, The acting undersecretary of USDA, um, Brandon Lips, put out a statement. They're they're asking for public statement, um, public commentary for people to try to understand how do we encourage self-sufficiency amongst people who are receiving SNAP? 
And that is completely coded language right. for how do we get these lazy poor people. I mean, this is what they're saying. How do we get lazy poor people off of SNAP so that they're not taking our money? Right. Um, and yeah, like you said, like it's these are very value neutral terms that yeah. are actually loaded with value judgments. And it's not just, I mean, when you say welfare, when you say food stamps, like that conjures up very specific ideas in your mind of poor black people who would rather get, you know, help from the social safety net then pull themselves up by their bootstraps right. like that's the specific value that they're coding in there let me tell you a little nugget <laughs> about about public benefits they're not they're they are minuscule yeah. they're what we call elizabethan which means they are just enough to allow you to not die right but enough to embarrass you and force you to to not want them right. so they and they're want, designed that way right exactly um I don't know if we we didn't talk about like what we do. Oh right, <laughs> and why we're experts. <laughs> why are we qualified I, to have a podcast? I was born this way. Actually, <laughs> I was born fully woke, um, and that's just who I am. Um, so, so I'll, I'll end on that in terms of the policy the policy conversation. Um, but you know, tying tying in this movie to to the current conversation is mm-hmm. just, um, and you mentioned the depictions of Africans and. Um, just how these depictions and stereotypes about people of color um, have just are just so ingrained in our in our culture mm-hmm. um, and in our conversation um, that it it drives our policy decisions. Yes, um, and that's important to know if we want to actually you know pass policy that's going to help people, that's going to grow our economy. <laughs> Um, that's going to do all these things that we actually say that we want to do. Right. Like we need to, we need to actually change our perceptions of people and who to help and how to help. And that's not, I mean, I'm not saying that changing pop culture will change policy. I'm saying that the change, like the change is the same. Changing how we perceive of people is, you know, sort of the fundamental thing here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, I mean, we took a very deep dive. We can pull it up. (laughs) We can pull it up. And, you know, we are obviously not the only people who are talking about Black Panther or just about any of these themes. And so we want to let you know about some other stuff that you should read or watch or just sort of be tuned into um, to continue this conversation. And I would say my one thing is... It should be an article, but instead I'm going to recommend a book. Um, it's a book that really affected me very deeply called Homegoing by Yag Yassi, who is a, who's a Ghanaian writer. And it's really about, I mean, every chapter is from another person's perspective in a family tree that you see beginning, it gets split. One side of the family um, becomes complicit in the African slave trade and one side of the family becomes sold into the African slave trade. And the whole thing is just about how we still carry as black people in all parts of the diaspora, we still carry um, the scars of the slave trade and of colonization sort of with us and how it has taken several generations and it's still taking us, you know, it's still taking us time to heal from these wounds. Um, It's not a light book by any stretch. I did like, I had to balance out each chapter with another, just like not a comic book, but something about as light as a comic book so that I could just sort of keep myself up because it is very, I mean, it's very emotionally affecting, and these scars run very deep. But it's a beautiful book, and I really recommend it. Um, I have some recommendations. Go for it. Monarch has fun. Well, a couple are. Okay. <laughs> as fun so, as a book that you have to read another book so that you don't no, cry. That, not fun. Okay. <laughs> so one book, um, which 
which I which I would recommend. Um, and maybe not even the whole book, but at least to skim through is a book called Black Slave Owners, Free Black Slave Masters in South Carolina from uh, 1790 to 1860. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a it's a history book. Um, that sounds about right. <laughs> and it is what it does is they documented they use census records actually to document to find and document the experiences of um, free blacks who own slaves um, in South Carolina. What it's a it's pretty it's a pretty fascinating read and it's a bit of an emotional emotional roller coaster um, especially because you know you you don't want to it's it can be difficult to complicate mm-hmm. um, complicate slavery especially because we just don't there's so many questions um, but one thing that I think is great about it is that it really does complicate and paint a broad, a very complex picture of people's experience. Um, and so what you find in the book is that a lot of people were on record as slave owners mm-hmm. who owned family members as a um, way of emancipation. Um, it also documents people who were free black people who just owned slaves yeah. as a system, as a part of the chattel slavery system. Um, and the reason why I suggest that book is because I think like this movie, it really complicates did you know that black people are not a monolith? I don't know. What are you saying? <laughs> and so this book really, what are you saying to me right now? <laughs> this book really helps to complicate that. The other couple of articles I think that are great mm-hmm. um, is this really cool LA times piece that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. It's titled 1992 bloodiest year in Oakland history, which is just like a quick, probably 200 words. Um, but when you read it, you're like, Oh man, it just really hits you. Yeah. Um, the other two are um, one, called one five one-liners not to miss in black panther <laughs> which has is not a cultural critique at all but it really is but the best way, one-liners um, number five is when michael b says hey auntie which <laughs> which that was so much and if y'all haven't seen the movie you don't understand like that line is fraught with so much meaning and so much i think also the charisma she was his actual auntie yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which was unnecessary for the line to work, but the but fact it that she worked <laughs> on so many levels. <laughs> yeah, so that was great. Um, and then one of my personal favorite articles mm-hmm. um, is one which um, explains from a completely um, objective perspective and scientific and thing. scientific, yeah, yeah. Um, economics, <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> it explains um, where each character would. Um, would land in terms of the Divine Nine, um, which was actually an exercise that I was doing as I was watching the of film. Of course it was. <laughs> My personal results did line up with the objective analysis That's shocking. Well. That's that. shocking news. Yeah, so. <laughs> Since they were not at all complimentary to you and your affiliations. They weren't. I mean, T'Challa is naturally... Okay, we're just going to stop this right now. Let me just quickly... <laughs> I have one more article that I want to recommend um, from The Glow Up. Um, that's called The Trouble with Hero Worship is Team Killmonger also Team Toxic Masculinity. This is something I got in a fight with my Lyft driver about the other day. Um, (laughs) I don't know why this keeps happening to me, but my Lyft drivers lately have been deciding to just like mansplain a lot of stuff to me, especially about how great uh, Eric Killmonger is and... You know, whatever. This is a really... I think it's a really good article. It's a good conversation to have about how, you know... He has he makes a lot of good points. He makes I mean, his perspective, like we said, comes from a really real human place. But the way he um, 
the way he enacts his mission is <laughs> deeply problematic, I would say, mm-hmm. um, especially with how he treats black women. And so this is a really good article for y'all to check out. I think that's it. I mean, we dove pretty deep. Yeah, I mean, I could continue. but Of course, we could continue for hours, but... I feel like you should go watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't watched the movie at this point, I hope that we've chastised you enough to go <laughs> And given you enough to think about. If I had a DVD player, I would buy it on DVD. That's the thing. I keep saying that I'm going to get it on DVD. I do not have a DVD player. I don't have <laughs> any way. Just frame it. Just frame it. <laughs> just let me just get it on Laserdisc real quick. So, this was at the intersection. Mm-hmm. Um hope you enjoyed um we'll keep talking about policy issues and culture and how they align until we're free (laughs) all right see y'all later